Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 17. These are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation at the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. No shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. But water would come out of the ground and water the entire surface of the land. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river went out from Eden to water the garden. From there it divided and became the source of four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, which flows through the entire land of Havilah, there is, where there is gold. Gold from that land is pure. Bdellium and onyx are also there. The, the name of the second river is Gihon, which flows through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which runs east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Good afternoon. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 2. Uh, we're continuing in Genesis, looking at verses 4 through 17 uh, today. So let me pray, and then we'll start working through that. Um, Lord, I am so grateful for our church family. Um, and just uh, a week that has um, just even personally for me been um, just hard and uh, difficult, um, just the joy uh, that I have um, right now, to be um, in your presence uh, with your people uh, and to learn and be fed together by the truths of your word. Um, I pray, Lord, that you would just show us something beautiful uh, about yourself, um, about your good news in Christ uh, through this passage. It's in his name I pray. Amen. All right, so, uh, so far in our Genesis series, we have looked at the creation uh, account. Uh, we've talked about how God is the uncreated one, the one who's made all things out of nothing. He took what was formless and void, and then he, he formed it and he filled it. And on the seventh day, he rested. Uh, God labored. He labored and worked to create a creation that was what he called good, a creation that we can call good, that we can call beautiful. And he completed that work. And just as we saw last week, as God rested, we are invited to rest in his rest. We are invited to participate in this Sabbath rest today through faith in Jesus. And now today we're turning the corner into a brand new section of scripture a brand new section of Genesis uh, that's focused on God's relationship and purpose for humanity. 
So in the last chapter, if Genesis 1 was sort of the big picture that was focusing on like the creation of the universe, uh, how God created all things, the heavens and the earth and the animals, uh, sort of culminating on humanity, Jesus or Genesis 2 rather, uh, focuses on the creation of humanity. And so the apex of creation in Genesis 1 was uh, the creating of mankind, how we were uniquely made in the image of God. And in Genesis 2, um, you'll notice um, there's no buildup like there was in Genesis 1. Uh, It's it's just kind of one block of text where everything is focused on human beings, about mankind's original environment and God's special covenant relationship with man. What I want you to see and to chew on uh, is, is, is this, this main point. It's that God's plan for humanity has always been to have a special and joy-filled covenant relationship with them, with us. And that because of Jesus, we can enter into that relationship by grace and through faith. I'll read that again. It says, God's plan for humanity has always been to have a special joy-filled covenant relationship with them. And because of Jesus, we can enter into that relationship by grace and through faith. And so let's look at this text now, beginning in verse 4. The first part of verse 4 says this. It says, these, in other words, what he's about to write, these are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. Now, quickly, I want to point out that, that th- this verse here acts as sort of like a chapter, a chapter heading, right? It, it shows that there's a pivot here. It's, it's how we know that Genesis 1 was about the big picture, and Genesis 2 is now zeroing in on something different regarding uh, humanity. Now, if you're looking at this, you might be like, well, why would that be in chapter 2, verse 4? That's like an awkward place to put the heading of a new section. And it might be helpful for you to know that the first three verses of chapter 2 actually probably should have been at the end of chapter 1. And it's not because they're like someone made a mistake when they were reading the Bible. It's not like uh, the Holy Spirit screwed up there. There's no error in the scriptures, right? Like we believe as a, in the church as the inerrancy and infallibility of scripture. But it's rather because, uh, and this will be helpful for you to know, is that uh, all the chapters and verses uh, that we use were um, actually completed and added in the 16th century. Uh, and they're, 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 so the, the chapters and verses are not inerrant. The words are inerrant, but the chapters and verses are really just kind of given to us as, as, as sort of like addresses to help us find things in the scriptures, right? The more you know. So um, Moses, and is, we see that he uses this sort of language uh, in, in Genesis 5 too. He, in Genesis 5, he says, this is a document containing the records of Adam and his family. And he uses the same language in chapter 10 and 11. And so every time he uses this language, it marks the division of, of, a, of, of a new section of the book. And why is that helpful to know? It's because it, it helps us to know that like, hey, what he's about to say and get into has significance in a way that's different from what he's previously written on, all right? So in chapter one, we had an entire sermon on the Imago Day, right? On how humanity was created in the image of God. And so Moses is gonna write about humanity some more in chapter two, but we need to understand that what he's about to write and unravel and unpack is uh, 
significant in a different way. And so let's start working through that. Here's our first point. Our first point is we're going to see in this text the setting of man. The setting or the context of man's creation. Let's read verse 4. This time we'll read the whole thing. It says, These are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. At the time that the Lord God made that earth and the heavens. Now, here I want you to notice another shift in language. You see how in the English it capitalizes the word Lord? You ever notice that? Right? You ever notice how like in the Old Testament that sometimes the word Lord is, is capitalized? Now that actually starts here. Uh, in chapter 2. This is different from what Moses has been doing so far. If you turn back a chapter, you'll see that up to this point, Moses has been, you, you'll see, you won't see Lord God, you'll just see God. And that's because in the original Hebrew, uh, Moses is using uh, one word designation for God. He's using the Hebrew word Elohim. We've talked about this before. Elohim means Creator. It's a word that's full of the majesty and wonder that describes God as the only uncreated one, the all-powerful creator. But now in verse 4, the name that he chooses for God switches to, in Hebrew, Yahweh Elohim, or Lord God, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D God in our English translations. Now, why does this matter? Why is this significance? It's because that, that Hebrew, every time you see Lord capitalize, it's actually the English translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh. You've heard of the name Yahweh before? Now, Yahweh is the personal covenant name of God. It's the name that God gave to Moses when Moses asked him, hey, what should I tell your people to call you by? Who should I say is, is wanting to enter a relationship with them? And God reveals his name as Yahweh. He says, tell them I am what I am, which is his way of saying, look, I am the eternally existent one. I'm the God who just is. It tells us that our God is in a whole category all to himself. He always was. He always is. And he always will be. And so when he reveals his name as Yahweh, it tells us like whatever view that you had of God before, whatever box we put him in before, it just breaks because God is bigger and better and more beautiful than you can imagine. He just is. And so this name Yahweh Elohim is the personal covenant name of God, the God who relates to his people, the God who redeems his people. And in a very intentional, I think, and beautiful way, Moses combines Yahweh and Elohim as a way to say he is not only the creator, but he is the covenant redeemer too. He's the God who brought us out of Egypt, as he would say to the Israelites. He's not just your maker, as Genesis 1 says, but he's also our deliverer, as you have experienced. Let's continue reading in verse 5 and 6. It says, No shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. 
For the Lord God had not made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. But mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground. Now, these two verses simply just describe the condition of the earth before man shows up. It's, it's wild. It's untended. My wife would say it's like my mustache when I wake up in the morning, right? All over the place, not tidy, not attractive. And when it says the mist comes up from the ground, that refers to these, these springs that would rise up from the dirt and water the arid earth. At this time, there were no flowers, no bushes. It was kind of flat and boring. And why was it flat and boring? It's because there was no man to work the ground. And so it leads us into the next section where we see point two, the nature of man. The nature of man. Verse seven says, then the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, he formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. And the man became a living being. Man, I want you to just think about how crazy and awesome and majestic this verse is. It almost sounds poetic, right? And, and I think it's supposed to be. There's powerful prose here. It says that Yahweh Elohim, he, he formed, he was involved. He formed the man out of the dust from the ground. And then God himself breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. And then the man came to life. He became a living being. Now, that word formed in the original Hebrew is a very creative word. It's an artistic word. It's meant to indicate to us that the act of creation here is by careful design. There's a lot of intentionality put into this, a lot of forethought put into this. You guys know that famous painting by Michelangelo on the Sistine uh, Chapel, right? Uh, during the Renaissance, humanism was the dominant religion at the time. And humanism, uh, the, 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 the idea that just everything revolved around humans, that humans were uh, independent in and of themselves, that, that we didn't need uh, any personal relationship or knowledge or wisdom from a deity. Um, humanism was the predominant religion and worldview at the time, and it was influencing all kinds of art and culture, even to the point of influencing the Roman Catholic Church at the time. And in the early 1500s, you got uh, Michelangelo, uh, the artist, not the Ninja Turtle, but Michelangelo, he was commissioned to paint the famous uh, Sistine Chapel painting on, on the ceiling. And as wonderful and awesome and beautiful and iconic as his painting is, it's still, if you look closely at it, depicts a very humanistic depiction of man's creation. Where you've got God, who is far away and transcendent, reaching out to touch the finger of Adam. But, but here, in Genesis 2, verse 7, what we have is a very different account of man's creation. God isn't far off and sitting in the clouds like Michelangelo imagined it. God is, in Genesis 2, is, is more like an involved artist. He's more like a, a potter getting his hands dirty. God is the potter. The dust of the ground is the clay. And he gets his fingers in there 
and he works at it, and he molds it, and forms it, and figures it, and then he breathes life into it to create the first man. Now, you know what that tells us? It tells us that the creation of humanity, the creation of men and women, was not an afterthought. It was intentional. We are the intentional design of an infinite mind. The same mind that created the very constructs of, of time and space, the laws of physics like gravity. He created the atom and the cosmos, the edges of the universe. And that infinite mind was intentionally focused and involved in the creation of man. That gives all of us dignity. It makes all of us worthy of value and honor. It gives us a purpose and intentionality. But at the same time, we're told that man was made from the very earth that we walk upon. From the dust of the ground, it says in the CSB. And so on the one hand, yes, we are fearfully and wonderfully made by God. But on the other hand, we're made from the dust of the ground. And because of sin, we'll return to the dust. John Calvin gets real when he says it this way. He says, the body of Adam is formed of clay and destitute of sense. To that end, no one should exalt beyond measure in the flesh. He must be excessively stupid who does not here learn humility. I, I call this, say it like it is, Calvin. You see, he's just saying that humanity, when we, when we really reckon with the fact that we are formed from the dust of the ground, and God breathes his own breath to bring us to life, to make us immortal beings without ends. Yes, there's honor in that. Yes, there's dignity and value and worth found in that. But with that dignity, let us also find humility. Find humility knowing that we are mere creatures, intentionally formed and created by the creator. Let us have dignity, yes, but also humility. And but at the same time, let us be humble, yes, but let us not wallow in our unworthiness. Let us know and understand and see that we were created in a position of honor in the mind of God, in the creative mind of God. So what did he do with man? What sets apart man from the other creatures? This, this pours us into our third point, where we see the responsibility of man. The responsibility of man, we, we begin to see um, in, in verses 8 through 15. Let me read the first two verses first. It says in verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he placed the man he formed. And the Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so here we see God positions Adam, the first man in the garden, in a region that's called Eden. 
Now, we don't know where this is geographically, but again, that's not the point of Genesis. And we've said this again and again, that this isn't so much a science book as it is a salvation book. It's to tell us the story of origin for all of humanity and for the deliverer of God's people. And it continues on in verses 10 through 15. It says, a river went out from Eden to water the garden. From there it divided and became the source of four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, which flows through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. Gold from that land is pure. And Medellin and Onyx are also there. And the name of the second river is, is Gihon, which flows through the entire land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, which runs east of Assyria. I don't know why that was so hard for me to say. Uh, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. Now, again, though we can't be sure of Eden's location from these verses, what we can be sure of is God's love. It's obvious that the garden that God planted was for the good and joy of humanity. It was because he loved Adam and wanted to bless him. It's evidence of God's goodness. I mean, first of all, you see that the Lord's the one who did all the work. He's the one. God, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, is the one who planted the garden, not man. Adam would tend the garden, as it says down in verse, verse 15, but, but God would be the one to provide the increase here. It says, the Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food. So it is God who did this. It is God who cultivates it and provides the increase. He's the one, God is the one who would make it majestic and wonderful and lush and beautiful and overflowing and teeming with life. We mentioned last week uh, about how you'd have these other uh, uh, Near East religions at the time that believed that, that the gods created man in order to take care of the earth for them so that uh, the gods could just like chill and rest. But how the Bible is so different because it shows us that God himself works and that gives us dignity to our work. It provides value to our work. The Bible tells us that God not only works, but he works to provide for us. How wild is that? The creator works to bless and to provide for humanity, for his creatures. And notice from Genesis 1, he doesn't rest until he's met the truest and deepest needs of his people. Throughout the Bible, he, he, he ceased from his creative work, but he never rests in his salvation work until he meets the truest and deepest needs of his people. And look, there's another point to be made here about the dignity of our work and vocation. I want you to notice that God commissioned man to work at creation, which happens before our fall into sin. 
God commissioned us, he commissioned Adam to, to, to work before the fall into sin. Now, why is this significant? Why does this matter? What does it tell us? It, it tells us that, that work, vocation, calling in and of itself is a good thing. Work, the ability to work is a gift from God. Societies ever since ancient times have been telling us that work is a curse and something that just takes up our time. Something you, uh, you have to do. Or, or it's, a, it's a burden to bear in order to support ourselves and our families financially. Now, that, that last point is definitely an important point to consider. But even more so, the Bible teaches us that work is so much more than just a means of provision. The Bible teaches us that work is given by God to give us meaning in life. He gives us meaning in our lives through work. He uses work to shape our character, to grow us spiritually even as we depend on him. It's also a way, work is also a way for us to, to love our neighbors by producing goods and services that other image bearers need and want. By creating art and, and creative things for other image bearers to enjoy. And so work is a good thing. And if we find it burdensome, or if we find work exhausting, then it's only because we experience the God-given gift of work in a world that has been stained by the effects of sin. Our bodies waste away. And time feels like it goes on forever. And the world makes us toil and sweat and be exhausted. But that's not because of work. That's because of how sin has affected the world in which we work. Our burden, burdensome, being burdensome and, and just feeling exhausting is a result of God's curse on creation because of Adam's fall. And it's a curse that won't be removed until Christ returns and evil and all suffering will be made no more. But this leads us into our, just the, the last point of our text where we see number four, the covenant with man. In this text, God makes a covenant with man. You might remember from when we, we mentioned the, just sort of the main idea up front that what God desires is a joy-filled covenant relationship with mankind. Now, what does that mean? Now, we'll talk about what the, this means, but I, I need you to understand that this concept of covenant might be new to some of you, to many of you who have not been trained or developed in theology. All right? And so that's, that's probably most of us in, in this room. Um, but I want you to just bear with me. And I want you to be patient because we're going to visit this covenant theme uh, a, a few times throughout our Genesis series. And I think that each time that we do, you'll get a better and better grasp of it. But, but it matters because it's so significant. This idea of covenant is so significant to understanding 
how the overarching story of salvation just weaves together, how the Bible just threads together. You can't see how the Bible fits together without the concept of covenant. It's because all throughout the Bible, we see that God enters into relationship with his people in the form of what the Bible calls covenants. And a covenant is basically an agreement on how a relationship between two parties is going to work. And that's why when two people got married, we call that a marriage covenant. It's because when you join a church, you call that a membership covenant, right? And so a covenant is an agreement between how the relationship between two different parties is going to work and flesh itself out. It's part of what makes us human. It sets us apart from all other creatures. Consider how we are the only creatures on the face of the planet that can contemplate what it means to have a relationship with God, what it means to have purpose and meaning, to have blessings or curses. You see, the Bible itself is actually a covenantal book. If you didn't know already, uh, to read it rightly, we need to understand the covenant threads weaving throughout. And you might not have known this before, but that word covenant is actually written as the two primary top-tier headings of your Bibles. Old Testament and what? New Testament. The word testamentum is literally the Latin word for covenant. And so you could see those two headings as Old Covenant and New Covenant. And the reason that the early Christians labeled their Bibles that way is because they saw how the scriptures, how the Bible was split by this Old Covenant made with men like Moses and then this New Covenant that is accomplished in Christ. And here, in the beginning of Genesis, what we see is that God makes an agreement. He's a sovereign God, so he gets to write the agreement whether we were part of that process or not. But God, he makes an agreement in which he receives worship and glory on one side, and humans receive blessing and privilege and joy on the other based on the condition of their obedience. Verse 9 tells us that there are two trees at the center of the garden and that life was at the center of the garden. And then verses 16 and 17, it says, this is where you see the covenant language at work. In verses 16 and 17, it says that the Lord God commanded the man and said, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Now this tells us that Adam, under this covenant, was to enjoy everything that he could. 
everything that he wanted. Adam was to enjoy everything in the garden to his heart's desires, including the tree of life. It's lavish blessing, extravagant privileges. This is the garden that God planted and grew for him. It's the garden that God grew for humanity. It's teeming with abundance, teeming with life. Everything there in the garden was for him, Adam, and his family. Everything he could ever want. And his tending the garden, in verse 15, his tending the garden and caring for it would bring him joy. Because remember, this is before the fall. Work wouldn't be hard. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be exhausting. It wouldn't be toiling. And so he would care for and garden it And that would bring Adam joy. It would be his Sabbath rest to enjoy and tend to the garden. But as covenants go, there is a warning attached in verse 17. A warning that says, don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will surely die. Now, listen, I know that a lot of people myself included, for, for uh, a, a number of uh, just months as I was studying this years ago. But a lot of us, we, we, we scratch our heads when we read this. About the two trees, seems kind of strange, kind of random. Why two trees? Why, why do it this way? It seems, seems arbitrary. Um, seems arbitrary at best and, 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 and kind of messed up at worst. Like, why would God even put that possibility there? But I think when the more you think about it, the more you begin to see the importance and the beauty behind God's desire to have a relationship with his people. I want you to consider how having these two trees, whether regardless of, um, I, I believe, and I think the Bible teaches that these are two literal trees, regardless of whether you want to say they're literal trees or figurative. These two trees, consider how they provide a way for God to enter a covenant relationship with his people. You can't even have the possibility of a covenant relationship without the option of these trees. It's like if someone told you, hey, I wouldn't choose you if you were the last person on the planet. You'd be like, dude, that stinks, <laughs> right? Like, that hurts. That, that, that's, kind of, that's kind of messed up. Am I hated that much by you? But if that same person said, hey, I would choose you if you were the last person on the planet, that wouldn't woo you, right? <laughs> like that, that wouldn't melt your heart. That wouldn't give you all the feels if somebody said, hey, if you were the last person on the planet, I would choose you. But if that person were to say, of all the billions of people on the face of this planet, I choose you. Like that would mean something. That says something. And when God says to us, of all the creatures I have made, I choose you to enter a covenant relationship with, to bless you and fill you with joy as you, as you plunge the depths of your creator spiritually and emotionally and all these other ways. Like that means something to us. And when we say back to God, 
of all that you've made in creation for me to enjoy, of all the choices I can make, I won't choose the one thing that you tell me not to choose. That means something about our satisfaction and joy that we find in God. I think John Piper gets to the heart of this when his famous quote that he calls Christian hedonism. And he says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And he admits that this term that he came up with, Christian hedonism, is, sounds controversial, right? And he says that's kind of on purpose because when you think of a, a hedonist, you're thinking of somebody who's like the prodigal son, just always wanting to spend on their own joy and, satis and satisfaction, right? Somebody who's after their own pleasure. But what Piper says is when you study the scriptures, from the Old Testament to the New, the Old Covenant to the New, what you find is that God is actually after our full satisfaction as well. God is after our deepest pleasure, our most eternal joy. It's just that he knows that our deepest pleasure and joy can only be found in him. And so the Christian hedonist is somebody who says that God is most glorified in me. He's most honored in me. He's most adored and worshiped through me when I find my most satisfaction and delight in him. Look, the Bible tells us that God is not after killing your joy. He actually wants to satisfy it. People think that following God, that, that, that following Christianity steals joy. But rightly understood, I think it fulfills it. Because there's no true satisfaction apart from him. Think about it. There's no true, lasting, deep satisfaction apart from Yahweh Elohim, apart from the God who made us. He made us. We were made in his image. We were made in his likeness. We were made to reflect his truth, goodness, and beauty in the world. And having a forbidden tree, just one forbidden tree, not a forbidden forest like in all the famous fairy tales, but just one tree, one forbidden tree, the existence of that forbidden tree made it possible for our first parents to seek wisdom and truth and goodness and beauty apart from God. It made it possible for them to freely choose disobedience, to choose moral autonomy, to decide for themselves what is right and good without the will of God. And look, God in his kindness, he said to them, hey, I want a relationship with you. I want a covenant relationship with you, and so obey. Obey me in this way, and just find out how you'll be blessed. Find out how much I'll fill your joy. Have this joy-filled relationship with me. But disobey, 
and be cursed and find that creatures like you will only find real and true satisfaction in the Creator. Had Adam yielded to and followed this command he was given to refrain from eating the forbidden fruit, he would have earned for himself and his children's children and his children's children's children and his children's 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 children on down. He would earn for himself and the rest of us a record of righteousness in the eyes of God. But spoiler alert, Adam and Eve would break the terms of this covenant. They would desire wisdom, but they didn't look for it apart, or they, didn't, they looked for it apart from the source of wisdom. And instead of worshiping, ascribing glory and honor to God on his throne, they proverbially sought to dethrone him and set themselves up on that throne and thereby separating themselves by their own wills, by their own volition, separating themselves from true life and joy. And they became destined to death and despair. The bad news is that we've all inherited this sin. We're sinners not only by nature, but the Bible says that we're sinners also by choice. Even the most hardened atheist, if you sit long enough with your own conscience, you have to yield to that truth. We all inherited a sin nature. We're sinners by nature and choice. I mean, how often do we seek to establish our own wisdom apart from God's wisdom? How often do we attempt to dethrone God in our vain attempts at moral autonomy? If you think, man, if I was in Adam's spot, I wouldn't do that. I would just obey God. I mean, God, you're like, how, how hard could that be? We disobey God all the time. You know how easy it is. The good news is that there wasn't just a first Adam, but the Bible teaches that there was a second Adam or a last Adam. Where the Adam in Genesis was a representative for all mankind. The Adam who came to walk the earth 2,000 years ago was a second representative for all mankind. And because Adam the man would fail, but God still wanted a covenant relationship with his people, he sent his son the God-man, to take on the dust of our human flesh, to live a life subjected to temptation and suffering and despair. And in all the places that Adam failed, Jesus was faithful. Where Adam was weak, Jesus was strong. Where Adam sinned, Jesus was righteous. He lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we should have died. And Jesus did everything necessary to put us into a right relationship with God. And we get in on that 
by faith in him. That's it, by believing in him. By believing in him, it's all by grace. The first covenant in Genesis was a covenant by works. That's what the theologians call this, a, co a covenant of works. But the covenant of grace by which Jesus is the head is just teeming and overflowing with grace. Because all our vain attempts will just end up like Adam. And so God said, hey, I'll save you. I'll put you in a covenant relationship with me, but not by your will and power, but by mine. And not because you've earned it, but because I've loved you and sent my son to earn it for you. And not because you've paid the price of the penalty of your sin, because that price and penalty is death, the Bible says. But because I love you so much, that price and penalty would be paid by our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a gift available by grace to anyone who would believe. And to anyone who would believe, there is hope for lasting satisfaction. There is hope for true and deep joy. There is hope for an all-satisfying covenant relationship with Yahweh Elohim because of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.